0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content. They may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Jack was sound asleep. After another successful night of drinking in Haverhill, it had been ten days since they had flown their first mission to Berlin. In that time, the 300th had flown only one successful mission, and the 530th Squadron was not picked to fly that mission. However, all the new crews in the 300th had flown a total of five practice missions since they had arrived. The boss had become quite a socialite on the base and practically introduced himself to every officer in the 300th. Nevertheless, over the last several days, Jack had begun to notice that the boss seemed less and less friendly with the crew of Hailing Mary and Parnell's crew, and Jack didn't know why. Their hut was cold, since everyone was so tired and intoxicated when they came back to the hut that they forgot to feed the furnace. Jack shivered under his covers. And had brought his arms in towards his chest to try to warm his hands up with his body heat. Before Jack knew it, a bright light burned through his eyelids. For a brief moment, Jack felt that he was lying outside on a bright Sunday afternoon in his parents' hammock in the backyard. He lived in this dreamlike state for a few seconds before he heard a voice thunder over him Lieutenant Miller! Jack opened his eyes to see it was Sergeant Irwin. Yeah? Jack replied. Lieutenant, you've been scheduled to fly today. Breakfast at o four thirty, briefing at o five fifteen, and takeoff scheduled for 700 hours. Good luck, sir. Jack sat up in his bed and saw that he was the only one selected from his hut. O'Brien rolled over in his bed and wished Jack good luck, and soon the boss did the same. Jack quickly got ready, trying not to disturb the others in his hut. Once he was ready, he then turned off his lamp and proceeded to walk outside into the cold morning air. Outside, Jack was shocked to see a dense fog surrounding him. The fog was so dense and thick that he couldn't see any huts across the road from him, let alone the ones next to him. Jack entered into the bright-lit mess hall, which was packed with sleepy, hungry, and hungover airmen. Jack looked around the large room and didn't see anyone he knew, other than the people the boss had introduced him to in passing. For a moment, Jack felt utterly alone in the sea of strangers. Then, Jack felt a relief as a familiar face popped up from the back of the mess hall. It was Hill House. He was sitting with the officers from his crew and the officers from Texas's crew. Jack walked up to their table and was invited to join them. Jack sat down rather eagerly at the end of the table next to Hillhouse. Jack proceeded to ask where Benson was, since Jack didn't see him. Hillhouse responded by telling him that Benson was not selected to fly the mission. Jack, thinking that this was odd, proceeded to eat his hearty breakfast which consisted of fresh scrambled eggs, bacon, hash browns, and toast with a cup of black coffee. As Jack ate, he listened to Texas and Cobb tell stories about when they were in basic training and enjoyed their crescendo lace stories as they were more awakening than the coffee. Later, as the officers entered into the briefing hall, Jack looked and saw that he was assigned to fly with a crew of Captain Kids. Jack then looked and saw that their co-pilot, Henry Merkel, was assigned to fly with Hillhouse's crew. Jack felt a sudden sickening feeling wash over him, for while he knew the pilot, Sean Bernhausen, and the members of his crew, he didn't know them like he knew people like Hillhouse or Texas. So, Jack thought of an idea. Looking around, Jack was stunned to see that Lt. Bernhausen and his co-pilot were sitting towards the back of the room and made a beeline over to them. Hey, guys, Jack said as he sat on a chair behind the two men. Well, hey there, guy, Lieutenant Bernhausen replied, looking behind them. Yeah, listen, um, I see that Merkel is assigned to fly with uh, Lieutenant Hellhouse. I'm sure it's to give their crew an experienced crew member on their first mission. However, I know you probably want to fly with your own crew. Am I right, Merkel? Well, you see, I've been scheduled to fly with you, Bernhausen, and... Oh... So, you're Lieutenant Miller, Bernhausen commented. Yep, and I was thinking, while I would love the opportunity to fly with a more experienced pilot and crew, I also wouldn't mind flying with Lieutenant Hellhouse and his crew. You want to fly with the rookie crew? Merkel said, sounding shocked. Yeah, Jack replied. Merkel looked back at Bernhausen again and let off a skeptical grin. He then looked back at Jack and said, You do realize. That if the brass catches wind of either one of us switching up They could ground us Put us on potato duty Or letter to detail Or worse Yeah, I understand Jack responded And it'd be worth it to you? Merkel asked Yeah, it seems less dumb and reckless Than flying a plane loaded with bombs and fuel Over enemy territory But here we both are Besides, you know Two plus new crew members flying today It's gonna be a milk run Jack responded Merkel seemed impressed by Jack's defense and nodded his head and replied, "'Okay, deal." Merkel shook Jack's hand and after Jack thanked Merkel and wished them good luck, he proceeded to walk over to Hillhouse and his crew and relay the news to them, much to Hillhouse's delight. Several minutes later, the men all stood up in attention as Colonel Poole and his three upper brassmen walked down the center of the room and up to the stage. Colonel Poole was dressed in his standard officer dress attire and said the following. Good morning, gentlemen. Even though fog seems to be getting more thick and dense as the hours pass by, headquarters thinks it's going to pass by the time we start engines. With that being said, with the target scheduled for today, I doubt they'll call this one off. Jack, along with everyone else in the room, suddenly felt as though they were hanging in suspense as Colonel Poole let what he said soak the room. After ten long seconds of pause, Colonel Poole looked over at the man, who was to pull back the curtain, and gave him a head nod, signaling it was time to reveal the target. As the curtains opened up, Colonel Poole thundered. The target for today, gentlemen, is the Aero Aircraft Factory in Anklum, Germany. The room erupted in groans and complaints as the experienced crews knew what this meant. An officer sitting behind Hillhouse tapped him on the shoulder and made a morbid comment. I hope you can speak in the Deutsch, the translation was, I hope you can speak German. One hour later, March 16th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0630. Jack arrived at stand 35, home of the brand new B-17G named Dropping Deuces, piloted by Lieutenant Hillhouse. He and his crew finally named their plane, and it had been painted a few days previous by Hillhouse and Benson themselves. The name came from a long night of poker at the Officers Club, where in a very high-stake game, Hill House and Texas were the only two players left in the round, and Hillhouse won the large pot by convincing Texas that he had a better hand than him. Texas folded, and Hillhouse revealed that he only had a pair of twos. Benson was the one who came up with the name on the spot, and Hillhouse agreed to it, since it somehow reminded them of their stroke of good luck. The nose art was that of a car dealer with a big mustache surrounded by four cards with the number two in their four different suits. The nose art was impressive and colorful. Dropping Deuces was also a very unique-looking plane, since its olive-drab painted skin was much lighter than the others, giving it a more brown color than a green color. Jack patted Hillhouse on the shoulder and told him that he was going to do the exterior pre flight checks and did so only because he needed to have a cigarette. This was because not only was Jack extremely tired and felt his mind trying to persuade him to give his eyes a moment of rest, but also to calm his nerves, for he felt very uneasy about today's mission. Their target, Anklem Germany, was 1,600 miles away and over a hundred miles north of Berlin. To even the most experienced air crews, there were a lot of concerns with the mission. To start, the formation would be made up of eight groups, who would cross over the English Channel together, but would split off into two formations once they got close to the German coast. The first wave of bombers, the one the 300th would be flying with, would head to Anklam by heading north to the German and Denmark border where they would turn to the east and head towards their target. The second wave would break off and head to their target, which was the U-boat pens in Bremen, Germany. That meant that the first wave would be flying over the target with only 220 planes, and Anklam was a very fortified German city, with flak batteries and airfields surrounding the area. That was a fraction of the amount of planes sent to bomb Berlin, and the second wave consisted of more bombers than the one the 300th would be flying in. The second major concern was that with the high-altitude clouds of that day, the first wave, the one the 300th would be flying in, would have to cross over the German coast at only 15,000 feet instead of the usual 25,000 feet or 30,000 feet. Once the group got closer to the target, the formation was then to jump to 20,000 feet, but this still would put the formation in grave danger of flak, for it would be more accurate. The third concern was the fact that the second wave of bombers would have the protection of P-51 Mustangs, but the first wave would be for the most part unprotected once the two formations split. The thought of having little to no fighter protection while flying over Germany seemed suicidal to the men. Lastly, the fourth concern was that the target that they were headed to was a brand new facility since the previous one was bombed almost three months ago. This new facility was where a third of all parts for planes in the German Air Force were made and assembled. It was because of this, bombardiers were warned that heavy smoke screens would more than likely cover the facility in the city itself. If the target was covered, the men were told that the formation was to turn to their secondary target an oil factory in Kiel, Germany, which would mean that the formation would be in German skies for an additional hour. After Jack looked over at the exterior of dropping deuces, he proceeded to get back into the cockpit and join Hillhouse in doing the cockpit pre flight checks. Jack had come to like Hillhouse and his crew. Hillhouse reminded Jack of a typical sports coach, and men like Rosie agreed. He was witty, intelligent, and had an easy time befriending other officers and even enlisted men. In fact, one of the things Jack admired most about Hill House was that he often spent time with the enlisted men in his crew, as well as fellow officers. From what Jack understood, it was frowned upon for officers to socialize with enlisted men, especially from their crew, and would really only see them on days that they would fly together. But Hillhouse. Was turning out to be breaking that mold. It was because of this that Jack had become familiar with several members of Hill House's crew. In fact, Hill House's top turret gunner, Terrence Mercier, or Terry, grew up in Florissant, Missouri, which was not too far away from where Jack grew up. As Jack sat in the co pilot seat, he was perplexed by the dense fog that encircled his plane. Jack couldn't see his plane parked at its hard stand, which was just to the right. If there was no fog, the tail section of Loaded Bull would just be 90 feet away, but all Jack could see was just a wall of white. They're not really expecting us to try to take off in this fog, are they? Jack asked, still looking to his right side cockpit window where Loaded Bull was to be parked. I sure hope not. I guess we'll find out soon, Hillhouse said looking down at his watch and seeing that it was 0654. You know, this fog reminds me of um late summers in Pittsburgh when classes would start back up, Jack replied. I thought you were from St. Louis, Hillhouse asked. I am. I went to college in Pittsburgh, Jack said looking back at Hillhouse who was looking over his flight map. Is that right? What made you go there? Hillhouse asked keeping his eyes on the map. Oh, following the advice of an old friend, Jack replied not wanting to dive into the story about Mr. Weathers. Oh. Yeah, I'm on my fiancé back there, Jack said, changing topics. Hillhouse stopped for a moment, looked up at Jack and asked him, fiancé, you say? Why not your wife? Long story, it involves her mother, Jack replied. Yeah, well, I know all too well about mother-in-law drama, Hillhouse said. Jack knew that Hillhouse was married, judging by the ring on his left hand. Oh, but it wasn't drama. Her mom just got into an accident and she didn't want to miss the wedding and show up in a cast, Jack explained, as he went back to looking out the window. Damn, sorry to hear that, Hillhouse said. It's okay. It gives me something to look forward to when I get back, Jack said. Ah, yeah, that's the spirit, Hillhouse added. Yeah, so What's your wife's name? Jack asked. Renee, how'd you meet her? Oddly enough, it was uh, at a Christmas Eve church service. I was at the time studying law in Chicago, and it was over Christmas break, and I was invited by a classmate to join them for a Christmas Eve service at the church. Well, Renee's father was the pastor of that church, and she was the one who greeted me whenever I walked in. Hillhouse explained. Preacher's daughter? Yep and she lived up to that title, Hillhouse commented, looking back at his watch again. As silence fell upon the men, that's when the call came over the radio that the mission was on standby until the fog cleared. This came as to no surprise for the men of Hillhouse's crew, and they soon exited the plane and stretched their legs, for they knew they had a long mission ahead of them, if in fact it was going to happen. As Jack was about to get up out of his seat, Hillhouse stopped him and said, You know... If you'd like to doze off, now would be the time to do that. Jack thought about it, and the offer seemed rather tempting. After giving it some more thought, Jack gave in to the offer, and within minutes after Hillhouse left the cockpit, Jack fell asleep, with his head resting on the cold plexiglass window next to him. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news, because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast— you will receive bonus content that will help to enrich the way you listen to SNAFU. You will receive things like pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of both past, present and future missions, Q&A episodes, and for this episode specifically, a flight map of the entire mission. There is so much for you to gain by just donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of SNAFU each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Thank you for all of those who have already subscribed and are currently supporting this podcast. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Jack was woken up to the sounds of a jeep arriving at the heartstand of deuces. Looking down at his watch, it was only 7.20. He had only been asleep for a little over 20 minutes, and while it wasn't a lot, Jack felt somewhat better. His eyes didn't burn as much from the lack of sleep. He proceeded to exit the bomber and was shocked to see a large group of men huddled in the grass between their heartstand and Georgia Bell's. About a dozen airmen, both officers and enlisted, were kneeling in front of the Protestant chaplain on the base, Chaplain Schwartz. Next to the chaplain was a green drab painted jeep. Jack watched as the chaplain gave off a sign of the cross to the group of men, and looking closer, Jack saw that Hillhouse was among the men receiving communion and prayer. However, after looking at the other men, Jack was shocked to see that he recognized one of the men kneeling down along with Hill House and the others from his crew. It was Mills. Jack waited until the chaplain was done before he walked over to where Mills was. Mills? Jack asked. Oh, hey, Lieutenant. Your number got called, too. Mills asked as he was getting ready to put his leather flight helmet back on. Yeah, no one else did. Just me. Jack replied. Yeah, same here. You know, everyone's uh, probably still back in their hut sleeping. Bastards. Mills commented as he fitted his helmet on his head. As he did, Jack looked around and saw that the fog was clearing up and was now able to see the bull parked at its hard stand. It looks like the fog's clearing up, unfortunately, Jack commented. Yep, lucky for us, huh? Mills replied. So, how's uh how's the guys? Is Skimping and that doll that he met still linking up? Jack asked, changing topics to something not so morbid. <laughs> yeah, they are. Skimpy was with her for the first time alone last night. They went off on their own, and he got back just shortly after we did. Well, it gets good for him. How's Tommy and everybody else? No, they're they're all good. Yeah, we've been uh, liking having our own bunk, not as depressing as the old one. Although, I got to say, Tommy and Willie have made sure that the new hut smells like ass and cigar smoke. <laughs> "'Yeah, Tommy does have uh, some of the worst farts I've ever smelled, other than yours,' said Jack. "'That is true. I may have contributed to the way that that hut smells,' Mills joked with a smile on his face. "'So, uh, you're flung with Georgia Bell?' Jack asked, looking over at the crew of Georgia Bell and seeing that there were only nine of them. "'Yes, sir. I like the pilot. He's a good guy, it seems. He knows the boss.' At this point, who doesn't know him? Jack joked. (laughs) It's true. Although, I gotta say, I'm pretty sure that their uh, tail gunner is gonna try to kick me out of the plane once we're up in the air, Mills commented before looking back at Georgia Bell. Why is that? Well, I... As Willie would say, I may, or may not, have done something silly and foolish. What did you do? Okay, well, I'm not proud of this, but... I may have stolen his date, and I may have gotten lucky with her, and while I don't remember this part specifically, because I had one too many pints, I'm told that I returned her back to the young man and thanked him for letting me borrow her. Jack perked his lips, squinted his eyes, and nodded his head before he said, That's, um... That's... I know. So anyways... I don't have to worry about the Jerry's up there. All I have to worry about is Mr. Revenge coming after me. As Mills finished his statement, a jeep arrived at the section of the airfield, where the 530th was parked, and an officer yelled out, "Engine start five minutes! Again, engines start five minutes! Jack said goodbye to Mills, and the two exchanged last words to each other before they headed to their own planes, and soon after, the bombers started their engines and were on their way to the target. An hour and a half later, the formation was flying 11,000 feet above the English coastal city of Margate, and was just turning to the northeast to their next waypoint, which was 50 miles off the coast of Holland, and 60 miles from Lewenwarden, Holland. The 300th was flying in the second group of the formation in the Low Squadron. The 530th was in the Low Squadron, and Deuces was flying in the number 5 spot in the Low Squadron, meaning that they were in the lowest level of the formation. Looking ahead at the plane flying in the number one spot, was their squadron commander, Captain Robert Dearborn of Denver, Colorado, and his plane named Chief. The pilot had flown a total of 14 missions and was next in line to be the squadron commander when the crew of St. Lunatic failed to return after the mission to Berlin. Chief had a very colorful American Indian chief's head painted on his nose, That made it an iconic plane on the base flying down in the number two spot which was to the right of chief was first lieutenant clyde duke in his plane georgia bell where mills was flying as a replacement waist gunner flying to the left of chief and above him in the number three spot was second lieutenant sean bernhausen in his plane cap and kids Flying behind an underchief in Georgia Bell in the number four spot was the rookie pilot and crew from Texas with Love, flown by their pilot, Captain Anthony Texas McCormick. To his bottom right in the number five spot was First Lieutenant Walter Hillhouse and Jack of Dropping Deuces. Finally, on the other side of Texas, flying in the number six spot, was the return crew of Bob McGee, flown by a very pissed off and tired Lieutenant Richard Leslie, who had just returned back to Thurlow, two days after being stuck in RAF field near the English coastal village of Cromer. There, they had to wait until the repairs were made to their plane in order for them to fly back to base. However, as they learned, no mechanic at the small airfield had the kind of materials that they needed to repair Bamakee's damaged engine, ruptured oil line, and new right horizontal stabilizer. A mechanic from a nearby United States Army Air Force Base was sent up with a group of mechanics and within eight days were able to get her back in the Sadly, their radio operator, Edmund Clooney, was hit during the mission and passed away in a British hospital hours after they landed. Their tail gunner, Tillman Richmond had a bad case of frostbite when he tried to fix his jammed guns and accidentally touched it with his bare hands. The gunner lost three fingers on his left hand, and also lost the majority of the skin on his hand and was sent home as a result. Everyone on the base was glad to see Bob McGee returning home, since they were now in 18 missions and were the closest to finishing their tour. Now, only five men remained of their original crew, and that was a haunting fact to men like the boss and Jack. Jack looked back and saw the men of Hillhouse's crew getting into their positions. They looked eager for war. The same looks that men from his crew had before they actually experienced it the men in hill house's crew were good men the bombardier matthew nebo the man who jack and the boss met a week ago at the officers club had turned out to be quite the ladies man what was ironic to jack was while the british women adored him and followed him around like a puppy nebo had no desire to fraternize with them he was engaged to a girl named sally back home and while that usually didn't stop Aramen from enjoying the company of women, Nebo was raised in a devout Irish Catholic family and took his conviction seriously, along with his devotion to the woman that he loved. In fact, Jack was shocked by how many married men or men that he knew were in relationships that he saw getting a little too close and comfortable with local women. But honestly, he was now beginning to understand. While nobody ever talked about it, men while they were off to war, still craved the presence of a woman. In fact, after feeling and experiencing what Jack had felt and experienced and witnessed, he had found himself in need of a woman's touch now more than ever. Jack remembered hearing a lecture by Professor Keller once on how when young boys are hurt, saddened, or disturbed, they run to the protection and comfort of their mothers as God intended. However. When boys grow up to the age of 19 and 25 years old, that feeling of running to the arms of a woman seeking refuge doesn't go away. Now Jack was wondering if Professor Keller said this from experience from his time in war, or if he was just speaking on a philosophical level, like most professors did. Nevertheless, while Jack was able to restrain himself from running to women to find comfort, others simply could not. Men like Hill House, Benson, and Texas scoffed at officers who flirted with, went on dates with, or, as it would rarely happen, sleep with women when they had wives, fiancés, or girls back home waiting for them. But he was curious to see if they became more understanding after going on missions like Berlin. Deuce's navigator was a quiet, shy type, with a long, narrow face, short, dark hair, and thick eyebrows. His name was 2nd Lieutenant Luther Wertheim of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. His father was a German citizen before migrating over to America before Luther was born. His father was a Lutheran minister and felt called by God to come to America and preach the gospel there. It was because of this fact that Luther not only spoke German like his father, but he also kept in touch with many of his family members who had fled Europe in 1939 to places like Holland, England, and even Russia. This was a topic of conversation one night at the Officers Club, and Luther shared his letters by reading them out loud to men like Jack, and Jack found it mind-blowing. The other members of Hillhouse's crew, Jack was not as familiar with, but he at least knew their names, or nicknames, and where they were from. Their top turret gunner and flight engineer, Terry, was the guy from St. Louis, and lived not too far from where Jack was raised. He was an average-height man with strawberry blonde hair, fair skin, red lips, and a sluggish nature to him. Their radio operator was the slow-talking, sarcastic, aspiring music teacher, Wilbert Fields, from somewhere in God-knows-where, Utah. Jack didn't think anyone actually lived in Utah, let alone grumpy intellectuals like Wilbur. Their bald turret gunner was by far the oddest kid of the crew. His name was David Andrews, or as everyone in the crew called him, Andrew. He was short, stocky, and had a young pudgy face and thick eyebrows. The waist gunners were the most yin and yang pair that Jack had ever seen. The left waist gunner, Benjamin Cole, was from Topeka, Kansas, and was the only one in the enlisted men who grew up in a large city. Everyone else were sons of farmers or laborers in a small country town or towns just big enough to be located on a map. Benjamin Cole was a tall kid with blonde hair, high cheekbones, wide mouth, and strong defined chin. At only 19 years old, this chiseled former high school track star was the shyest member of Deuce's crew. Whereas the right-waist gunner, 18-year-old Mason Pointers, was short, looked scrawny compared to Cole, and was loud, bombastic, and was known for being a troublemaker. He had the pleasure of getting to know Tommy and Willie a few nights previous and became close friends with them. And then, finally, the tail gunner was a guy known as Hick. Hick was also stocky, had a wide pudgy face, pointed ears and an indent in his lip from a cigar that he was usually chomping on. He was not only the oldest member of Hillhouse's crew at the age of 25 years old, but he also had five children waiting for him back in Boonville, Arkansas. We're about to go through some thick clouds. Everyone hang on and call out anything they see coming close to us. We don't want to have any mid-air collisions, Hillhouse said over the intercom. As Jack looked upward, he could see that they were about to pass through dense clouds, The planes in the upper groups were already passing through the gray soup, and he was mesmerized by the beautiful sight. As Deuces was swallowed by the thick clouds, Jack began to hold his breath. Hillhouse seemed tense as he looked rather stiff, manning his yoke. Standing between the two pilots was the flight engineer and top turret gunner, Terry. He kept his eyes glued onto the sky and swore he saw something peering out through an opening in the clouds, but wasn't sure. Look out! screamed Terry as he shot his arm out and pointed in the direction of what he was seeing. Hillhouse quickly shot his face over to the 11 o'clock position and saw the tail section of Texas only being 20 feet in front of him. He was so close that down in the nose, Nebo and Luther were able to see the tail gunner of Texas's face shudder when he saw how close to Deuce's propeller he was. Hillhouse pulled up and quickly, Jack realized that they were headed straight towards the prop wash of Georgia Bell, and Jack pointed it out and said... And almost in an instant, Deuces banked to the right and escaped the danger. Once the crew of Deuces was in the clear, Hillhouse quickly looked over at Jack with a look of utter surprise. As Hillhouse moved Deuces back to the number five spot, Jack, being in an almost state of euphoria from his near-death experience, mixed with the almost comedic image of Hillhouse's face, made Jack burst into laughter. Hillhouse, not knowing what else to do, asked. What are you laughing at, dick? <laughs> Your eyes, they were as big as saucers, Jack said, barely able to mouth the words. Hey, Hillhouse, there's a plane over there. There's a plane over there. There's a plane over there. There's a plane over there, too, just in case you need to know. Nebo joked. That was about the scariest thing I've ever seen. You only knew a pair of underwear. Luther called. Hillhouse, after getting back into a spot, began laughing as well and soon the rest of the crew was joining in. An hour later, the formation was at their third waypoint, and were now headed to their fourth waypoint, which was over Buzzdorf, Germany. The laughter among the men had long since died down, and there was little to no talking amongst the men inside Deuces. Their seriousness was due to the fact that the escort fighters, four squadrons of P-51 Mustangs, were late arriving with the formation and would soon be leaving to defend the Bremen force flying 10 miles behind them since they too were late arriving at the third waypoint due to navigational errors, although this was not known at the time. Over the next 50 minutes, the formation climbed to their set altitude of 15,000 feet and watched the Dutch coast pass by on their right side. As the formation flew past the coastal area next to Lubinwarden, Jack remembered the area all too well from passing over it on their way to Germany. The Wadden Islands had a very distinct look and shape to them that seemed burned into Jack's mind. Before he knew it, Deuce's tail gunner, Hick, called over the intercom that the Bremen force, along with the little friends, were breaking off. This now meant that the Anklam force was now left alone and exposed with no fighter protection. Do you want to get more out of SNAFU? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, that's important, free resources to help you know more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. In fact, right now, you can take a virtual tour of two I said two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find movies, documentaries, free YouTube videos, and much, much more about the 8th Air Force in the B-17. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. You won't regret it. Now, back to the podcast. A half hour later, at 1134, the formation was flying 20 miles north of Kiel, and besides the flak going off in the distance, there had not been a single iota of German defenses in the skies since they had entered into German territory. Jack guessed that perhaps the Bremen force took a majority of the fighters, and the Germans thought that the force that they were in was a decoy. As Jack pondered the possibilities, he stared at Kiel moving past them. If the targeted inkling was covered and not visible, Kiel would become their new target, and Jack was hoping that it wouldn't come to that, because judging by the flat clouds in the distance, way out of the reach of the bombers, the city was well fortified and defended. Soon, the formation was flying over their fourth waypoint, which was 50 miles north of Rostock. Another German coastal city, with thick flak batteries being sent in the formation's direction. Again, none of them were close enough to cause any immediate danger. Jack looking down at his watch saw that it was 12 o'clock exactly. He felt like he had been in the air for a lot longer than 5 hours. The minutes slowly crawled by. The long, drawn-out anticipation of things going horribly wrong seemed to be eating away at Jack, who felt uneasy with the mission. As they flew once again over the German coast, the flak batteries from Rostock seemed to get closer and closer. With Deuces being at the bottom of the formation, men like Hillhouse's ball turret gunner, Andrew, felt very uneasy as he looked at the black puffs of smoke appearing less than 100 yards from the formation. At 12.15, the formation arrived at the initial point, and Nebu announced that he was opening the Bombay doors. Then suddenly, before the Bombay doors were fully opened, the dreadful sounds of flak could be heard off in the distance. Flak, one o'clock low, Nebo called out. All right, men, let's get those flak jackets on and strapped in, Hillhouse said, calling over the intercom. i that, Hick replied from the tail. Flak littered the skies around the formation. As they got closer, the shells were getting closer and closer. For Jack, this wasn't nearly as bad as Berlin, but it was still flak. To men like Hillhouse, this was unlike anything he or his crew had ever seen. A flak shell exploded just to the left of Deuce's nose compartment, and pieces of metal shrapnel hit the thin metal skin of the bomber. Three small holes appeared in the nose, much to Luther and Nebo's shock. The holes were located just above the right cheek gun. Up ahead, In the first group, a B-17 took a direct hit in the bomb bay. The explosion from the armed bombs were so powerful that it sent a violent shockwave and knocked another B-17 out of formation. As the B-17 attempted to gain control, Hillhouse noticed that the large, hanging fortress was now in the flight path of Group 2, specifically their group. Among the other comments given by the two men down the nose, Hillhouse said almost to himself, Oh, come on, buddy. Recover. 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 The B-17 struggled to regain control, and before Hillhouse knew it, the B-17 collided with a plane flying in the lead wing of their group, in the 100th Bombardment Group. The two B-17s broke into several pieces, and a few of those pieces were headed down towards Deuces. Oh, shit. Look out! Jack said, looking up and seeing debris headed towards them. Hill House cussing under his breath, moved the fortress in any way that he could. Most of the debris managed to miss the group, however, what Jack saw next stunned him. Jack saw the body of an airman, falling from the two planes that had crashed. The body was hurling down towards Earth, but flew directly in the path of the B-17's propellers in the 529 Squadron. A red mist appeared behind the bomber's right side engines, and soon after, the B-17 began falling behind as its number four engine was heavily damaged by the impact. Hillhouse and the members of his crew who had witnessed the carnage were mortified beyond what their brains could comprehend. Moments later, two flak shells exploded within lethal range of Georgia Bell. One shell exploded under the bomb bay, and another went off to the right of the radio room and waste compartment. Georgia Bell shuddered for a moment, and Jack's heart began racing. Georgia Bell remained in flight for the time being, but Jack prayed that Mills was all right. Trying to calm his mind down, Jack thought about Marlene back home. Where was she and what was she doing? It had been two weeks since he had last received a letter from her, or a letter from anyone. He knew that mailing could sometimes get backed up, but he would give anything to be with her right now. B-17 going down, 6 o'clock high. Call out Terry. Oh, God, come on, guys, get out of there, get out of there, said Hick. God, I've never seen something like this. The plane shook as a flak shell had exploded right next to Deuces. Jack felt the plane shudder, and suddenly there was no communication. The audio line had been cut. Jack looked over at Hill House and then looked back. He saw commotion coming from the back of the plane. Jack pulled down his mask and informed Hill House. Hillhouse told Jack to go in the back and check out what was going on. Jack spread into action as he tried to get to the back of the plane. It was as he was passing through the top turret section that he realized that Terry was already in the radio room with his portable auction bottle hooking it up. As Jack walked through the bomb bay, he began to see what was causing the activity. Their left waist gunner, Cole, had been hit by shrapnel. He was laying on the floor next to his gunner's position. Both of his feet were shredded and looked like someone had taken a shotgun to them. His legs were bloody and chewed up as well. The man was screaming as Mason tended to him, along with Wilbert. Just as Jack was about to head back, another flak shell exploded under deuces. Two fragments ripped through the floor of the bomber. One of them tore through Cole's neck and the top of his shoulder. The blast sent Jack to the floor of the radio room, and as soon as he stood up, he checked the ball turret to see if he was still alive, which he was for the most part since his turret was still moving. Jack looked in horror as Cole lived the last seconds of his life bleeding out from his neck injury, looking to men like Mason for help, guttering and choking on his own blood. After seeing Cole pass, Mason then became so furious that he flew his flak helmet on the floor of the bomber grabbed his right waist gun, and began firing at flak bursts going off. Almost immediately, Terry ran over and stopped Mason before he wasted any more ammo. Jack felt helpless as he went back to the cockpit to relay the news to Hillhouse. As he passed through the bomb bay, the bombs then were released, and Jack watched as they fell away from the bomber and down towards their earthly destination. As soon as Jack entered into the cockpit, Another flak shell exploded under Deuce's number four engine. Jack and Hillhouse saw that the engine was starting to overheat, and the oil pressure from the engine began to plummet. Hillhouse then shut off the number four engine and feathered the prop. However, almost immediately, Deuce has begun to fall behind. Hillhouse and Jack, both in a moment of chaos, attempted to get the plane's airspeed back up by pushing the other three engines' power, but they knew... They couldn't afford to use up any more fuel. So, they were left abandoned and helpless as they fell away from the formation to be left alone for German flak and fighters to come and attack them. Thank you for listening to Episode 10 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Kanso 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for episode 11 of Snafu.